I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. We have already read these verses during our second reading, but I ask you to keep your Bibles open during the sermon as we work our way through this text. As we look at these verses, I want us to note that the author shows why the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to angels. And his basic argument is that Christ is superior to angels because of his very essence, that he is the created or the creator, and they are merely created beings. And he's also going to say, continuing on in chapter 2, that Christ is superior to the angels because he has a better ministry ministry that he brings as our mediator in the new covenant. And the author of the Hebrews makes this distinction that Christ is superior to angels because the Hebrews might have been overlooking or overly admiring or overly adoring angels. They might have had too much of a preoccupation with, with angels in their churches. They might have been tempted, we think, to turn from Jesus to creatures that seemed more glorious and that seemed perhaps more interesting. There was a similar problem like this in uh, the church of Colossae. And we can understand this as people today because this issue has appeared throughout church history. It's nothing new. This was a big problem for the medieval church. For modern-day cults, this is also a big problem, as many worship angels and created things rather than the true creator God. We see how angels are also portrayed in culture, right, on TV, in popular culture, in books, and even in bookstores. If you've been in a bookstore lately, you've noted that there are so many angel figurines Figurines made out of glass, carved out of wood. Some of you have seen those angels that you could even put on your dashboard. Uh, There's even a bumper sticker that says, and I still don't understand what this means, don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. There's all kinds of misinformation out there about angels. There's all kinds of unbiblical teaching about angels. So, What does the Bible, then, actually say about angels? What we see in the Bible, in our first point this morning, the Bible describes the splendor of angels. Angels in the Bible go by many different names and titles. In Ezekiel chapter 1, they're referred to as living creatures. In Genesis chapter 3, they're called cherubim. And in the uh, letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, he calls them principalities and powers. In fact, in the book of Daniel, two of them, we know, even appear by proper name. They are called Gabriel and Michael. And how many angels are there total? The Bible doesn't specify, doesn't give us an exact number, but the Bible describes angels as being vast in number. The Bible uses words like a host, a legion, 
uh, camps of angels. They are numerous. And in the Bible, we find also many references to spiritual warfare, which reveals that there are good angels and bad angels, that the tempter in Genesis 3 was a fallen angel, we know. So that means that the angelic fall happened before God created Adam and Eve. But we know that the good angels, those who remain in service to God, do very specific tasks. They do very specific things. That angels are first God's attendants. They are those who dwell in his presence and who worship him continually. We read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 about this. That when John sees the throne in heaven, part of his description includes the fact that angels, he says, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night these angels are praising God attending to his worship. The angel's presence, we know, was not only described in the Bible in heaven, but also in the earthly ministry of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, we know that after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted by Satan, we read that angels then came and were ministering to him. And it was also an angel that ministered to Jesus as he agonized about the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke tells us that on that night there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him in that very difficult time. In the Bible, angels are also, secondly, God's messengers to his people. They are those who praise God day and night, but they are also messengers to his people. They bring God's word. They are described in the details are given to us in scripture that they appear to Abraham and to Lot and to Jacob, giving them very specific revelation. They also attended the giving of the law. We know that it was the angel Gabriel that was sent to God, by God to Nazareth to explain to Mary that her pregnancy, which was a surprise to her, was was a result of a miraculous conception of divine action. And it was a heavenly host, we read in the Bible, that proclaimed the good news to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. It was angels who said together on that night, as we think of every uh, Christmas, they sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I find it funny that the lights turned on as soon as I started reading that. Angels, we know, also, thirdly, speak and proclaim. But we also see in the Bible that they also take action for God. They do God's bidding in the world. We read from 2 Kings chapter 6 that it was an army of angels that protected Israel from the Syrians. I'm going to read again from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. That when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? 
he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a glorious sight for the servant to be given, to see this heavenly host of angels protecting God's people. So you can see from these points in Scripture, loved ones, that the splendor of angels is apparent. It's clear in the Bible that angels are marvelous creatures. In fact, when the Bible records how people reacted when they met angels, it wasn't a a reaction of of something casual, but it was often a reaction of fear and awe and dread as they were presented with these heavenly beings before them. In fact, John, when he saw an angel, he fell down in worship before that angel. And John had to be instructed not to do so. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 through 9, John writes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And so, considering how marvelous these creatures are described in, in Scripture, the author, the writer of Hebrews, now writes to explain why Jesus is superior to angels. That these beings, as they are full of splendor, that are present throughout the Old Testament, they were present, especially as we saw during the giving of the law. But as wonderful as they are, as marvelous as they might be, Christ is better. He is superior to the angels because of his very essence. He is the creator, and he is not a created being like these angels are. And Christ is also superior because of the better ministry he brings as our mediator in the new covenant, as we'll see in Hebrews chapter 2 in the coming weeks. And so in our text this morning, the author shows us that Christ is superior and that his superiority to the angels can be demonstrated from Scripture in five very clear ways. And each of these ways, as we'll see, is defended by quotations from the Old Testament. These Hebrew Christians, who at one time were Jews before their conversion to Christ, they believed in the Old Testament. This was their scripture at that time. This was their authority. The New Testament had not yet been completed. And so the author uses what we call the Old Testament to show Christ's superiority, how all things pointed to him, as Jesus himself said on the road to Emmaus. So as you look at this outline, at these five points about Christ's superiority to angels, some of you might be thinking, yeah, this is, this is really simple. It's all, it's all very clear. You know, why didn't the Hebrews just get it? Why didn't they understand? Beloved ones, I want to remind each of you this morning of the blessing 
that we have of nearly 2,000 years of clear teaching about Christ. The blessing that you and I have of being 2,000 years down the road after Christ's incarnation. You know, it's so easy for us to take for granted the fact that we live in the light of centuries of church history, of ecumenical councils, and of creeds that have clarified for us how Christ is revealed in Scripture, that have clarified for us that he is one divine person with two natures, that have clarified for us that he is fully human and fully divine, that he is the second person of the Trinity, who along with the Father and the Holy Spirit are one God. They are co-equal and co-eternal in their majesty. We know this, loved ones. Not because we're super smart. We know this because we are super blessed, we might say. Because you and I live at this moment, at this point in church history, and we stand on the shoulders of giants, as some would say. This is all a result of God's grace to us, a grace that the Hebrews did not have at this time when this letter was being written. And so let us look at these five points that the author draws from the Older Covenant. He first says Christ is superior because he is the Son. See this in verses 4 through 5. He has a better name. We read verses 4 through 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What we see in these verses is Christ's superiority over the angels is shown by the fact that he is a son and not a creation. We know that angels may be powerful creatures, they may be very dignified creatures, but Christ is the Son. And this title evidences the fact that he is the eternal Son. He is the one who is co-equal and co-eternal with the fathers, with the Father. You know, as believers, you and I, we are called sons of God. Sometimes we say we are sons and daughters of God. But that doesn't mean that we are sons like Christ is a son. You and I are sons and daughters. We are children of God by adoption into Christ. Christ alone is the eternally begotten Son of God. And the grace that we have in Him is then being adopted into Him because of the grace that is extended to us through his cross. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of this adoption that we have as children, as sons of God. We read in chapter 12, All those who are justified, God graciously guarantees to make partakers of the grace of adoption in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ. By this act of adoption, They are taken into the number of God's children and enjoy the liberties and privileges of that relationship. They are given his name. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. And they are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, 
like a father God has compassion on, protects, provides for, and chastens them, yet they will never be cast off, but are sealed to the day of redemption and will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We are children of God. Name. Secondly, the writer says that Christ is superior to the angels because he is worshipped by angels. We see this in verse 6. There we read, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Now here in verse 6, the author cites again from the Old Testament, giving us the second argument for Christ's superiority. And the title that he uses here of Christ, that he is the firstborn, it means that Christ is of the highest rank and not that he is first in the order of birth, as we would refer to in in maybe uh, earthly families. And again, the main point in this verse is to show clearly that in heaven, all the angelic host worships Christ. He is superior, and all the angelic host know it. It is evident to them whom they worship as the one true Son of God. One vivid picture of this scene of the angels worshiping Christ is in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's that very familiar vision that Isaiah sees of the Lord that we are familiar with. As he sees the Lord high and exalted. We read in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 of this vision. We read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his feet, and with two he covered his, his face, his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a wonderful vision that Isaiah is given. So the question is, who did Isaiah see in that heavenly throne room? The Gospel of John gives us the answer. We read in John chapter 12, verse 41, John tells us that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. That Isaiah was speaking about Christ in his prophecy. That the angels were worshiping him. Not vice versa. And as one writer puts it, if Christ is the object of angelic worship, should he not be the object of our worship? Next we see in the argument that develops that Christ is superior because he is a king, not a servant. He is superior because he is a king and not merely a servant. We read this in verses 7 through 9. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, these two quotations 
are from Psalm 104 and from Psalm 45. And the first quotation explains that though angels are wonderful and though their appearance might be radiant, though they might be full of splendor, they are still only servants who do what the Lord commands. They are his ministers who carry out his providential purposes. They, they, they are servants in his house, we might say. But, he says, the son is not a servant, but he is the king. And in verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 45. And notice that in this psalm, God speaks to God. And here, God the Father is speaking to God the Son and proclaiming his throne is established forever and ever. As one commentator writes, since full deity is ascribed to the Son who reigns on the throne, establishing justice forever, the Son then must be worshipped. The Son holds kingly power and governance over all, yes, even over the angels. Next, Christ is superior because he is eternal and unchangeable. See this in verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here we see... Loved ones, the sixth Old Testament reference. And this one comes from Psalm 102. Now, the verses quoted in the psalm describe God's power and his sovereignty in creation. And they ascribe now this power to the Son. We know through whom all things were made. And what we see in these verses is that the emphasis is on the fact that Christ is not a created being. But he is from eternity to eternity. He is the uncreated creator. The angels are created beings. There was a time when they were not. But Christ stands apart from his creation. He was not made, but he made all things. And he is therefore superior to all his creation, even to the angels. And lastly, Christ is superior because he is seated at God's right hand. It's what we read in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this seventh Old Testament reference is from Psalm 110, verse 1. This psalm describes how God invites the Messiah to sit down with him on his throne. This is the very psalm, if you recall, that Jesus quoted during his ministry to explain how he could be both the son of David and the son of God. See, many Jews in Jesus' day believed that the Messiah would be the son of David. But Jesus quoted this psalm to show that the Messiah would also be the son 
of God, the eternal Son of God. We read from Mark chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus points to the fact that David here is speaking prophetically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David, as he's speaking prophetically, could call his own son, Lord, the son that would come from his line, because this son would also be the eternal son of God. The eternal son of God, who in the fullness of time, we know, became incarnate and was born of the Virgin Mary. He is the one who existed before David, according to his deity, and after David, according to his humanity. He is the one who is fully human and fully divine. Jesus here in Mark was speaking of himself and revealing to all those who would listen and who were given understanding that the Messiah was not merely a human son of David, but he was also the divine son of God in one one person. And as the Messiah then, he would accomplish salvation for his people and would be enthroned at the right hand of God because of his obedience and his finished work. Loved ones, all of these older covenant verses, all of them exalt Christ as king very clearly, very evidently. They point to the fact that he, the Son, is king over all of creation and over all of his church. That he is the one who is infinitely higher than the angels. That he is Lord over all things seen and unseen. That he has no equal in creation. Why? Because he is the son of God, the one through whom all things were made. And we need to see, loved ones, because of this, we must therefore never let anything rival our worship of him. Never rival his place, his rightful place as king in our lives. We must fight to never let any desire or object or person ever draw our attention away from him and the salvation that he brings, he alone is superior. And he alone is worthy of our worship. And we see in verse 14 that not only is Christ superior to the angels and the only one who is worthy of our worship, but we also see a truth that the writer to the Hebrews gives us that you and I are also superior to the angels. This is a very subtle point that he makes in verse 14, that you and I are also superior to the angels. As he says in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? To serve who? For what purpose? Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who are those? You and I, loved ones, that angels are our servants. 
John Frame, in his Systematic Theology, he summarizes this point by saying, the doctrine of angels is a measure of the greatness of our salvation in Christ. For salvation lifts us above the angels. According to Hebrews, Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but in his resurrection, he is again exalted above them. Jesus' brothers, the church, then share that exaltation with him, fulfilling man's dominion over the earth. Although we do not yet see everything in subjection to man, we see this dominion in Jesus. So the angels minister to us, not vice versa. They attend to us according to God's command. The world to come is not theirs, but it is ours. It belongs to man who is made in God's image, not to the angels. John Frame continues and says that Scripture applies these facts by indicating that angel worship is not only a sin, but it's also a delusion from which Christ has set us free. Further, because of redemption, the prince of the evil angels, Satan himself, is a defeated foe. We may resist him, and the promise of Scripture is that he will flee from us. Christ is superior. He is the Son of God, and in him we have received this grace of adoption as sons, loved ones. And we are lifted high and exalted in him, through him, because of the grace that has been extended to us.